Hello and welcome to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. You're listening to Mountain Meister. On today's show, my guest is Chris Warner. He's a well-established mountaineer, and he's been guiding and climbing for the past several decades. Chris is also a leadership expert, both in climbing and in educating. He's taught at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania for many years, and he's also taught leadership to CEOs and other business leaders. Last year, Chris attempted to climb the third highest peak in the world, called Ketchenjunga, but the summit escaped him, so he wanted to give it another go this season. Now, this episode of Mountain Meister is going to be slightly different from our other ones. I've noticed in hosting conversations with outdoor adventure athletes that we're often talking about the past. Now, this makes some sense because we understand the past, right? We can tell more cohesive stories because we already know the setting, the conflict, the resolution. But that isn't reality, is it? We don't always know how things are going to turn out. There's this great quote. It goes, life is lived forward, but remembered and understood backward. For today's episode, the interview will have two parts, which occurred at different times. The first part will be when I interviewed Chris before his trip to Ketchenjunga. The second part when he returned. After my interviews with Chris will be our company spotlight segment with a cycling apparel brand called Danny Shane. We'll hear from the founder, Shane Hunt, and then roommate Max and I will review the products. But first, here are my interviews with Chris Warner. Okay, so you're leaving in five days. Where are you going? Uh, I'm heading back to Ketchenjunga which is the third highest peak in the world. It is the third highest? Yeah, so you have K- Everest and then K2, and then about 75 feet lower than K2 is Ketchenjunga. But okay. Twenty seventy-five 75 feet lower, but maybe like 2,500 miles to the east. Uh-huh, right, right, right. Um, okay, tell us more, like what, what happened last year or last time? Why are you going back? Well, I was on Ketchenjunga last year, and, you know, it's really, it, it, you know, the Himalayas have clearly changed a lot. So when I was a punk kid going over there, you know, in the eighties and nineties and really even through a couple of years ago, you just were completely, you just approached the whole thing as a completely self-sufficient group. So you had your own rope and your own tents and the whole thing. And, uh, well, last time I went, I didn't have time to plan anything. I just joined with some friends of mine who are running an expedition and it was a little bit more like the commercial expeditions I've led. So I led three different expeditions on the Northridge of Everest. So, um, you know, we had Sherpa support and there was uh, ropes and everything else that was placed up there. And well, on summit day, there was some uh, terrible miscommunication and about 20 of us left for the summit. And there was about a thousand feet of rope less than what we needed wow. to get to the top. So we were 1500 feet from the summit and we, we could see the top, um, but it was, it was just too the, the snow conditions were really bad last year, so you did not want to solo up and down these snow slopes. Um, they, we had this uh, this snow that, that they call it grapple. It looks like uh, styrofoam balls, mm-hmm. and eight inches or so a day had been falling of this grapple, and it just rolls everywhere. So it would kind of sometimes stick together, but it was not the kind of stuff that would could support your weight. So you'd be standing on this stuff, and all of a sudden, it would all just collapse underneath you because you were on top of a rock slab or a sheet of ice. And so it was not uh, fun stuff to solo. 
Oh. So it was I, it was smarter to turn around and go home and and pout. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have two questions. Uh, one is how how does such an enormous problem, such as one thousand feet short of rope, happen? Yes, I think that there was some dishonesty. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, because a group of Sherpas had gone out the night before the day before and they had fixed ropes and they came back and said, Oh, we're, we went to 8,000 meters and we only need 200 more meters of rope. Well, we start climbing the next day and find out that they stopped at 7,600 meters, which is 400 meters short of where they said they had been. And then, um, yeah, so there was somebody, somebody could have done math a little bit better than was done. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, um, everybody failed. Maybe some sort of, uh, motivated reasoning. I think somebody really wanted to get home and get to a hot shower and a a yak burger more than they wanted to go to the summit. So, (laughs) okay. So, uh, so at that point, uh, you had to turn around not only from the summit, but, uh, from the entire expedition. Yeah. We had had terrible, terrible weather. The Kachinjunga is very far East. It's it's closest 8,000 meter peak to the Bay of Bengal. And so it gets a lot of moisture off of, you know, the kind of the Indian ocean. And so we had had Literally, it was eight to fourteen inches. This grapple fell every single day, except for two or three different days, and this just happened to be the one weather window that would have allowed us to get to the summit. So, what do you uh, tell yourself, or how do you behave personally when uh, the, something like that is happening that's out of your control and preventing you from doing what you want to do? Well, it was really interesting because a lot of the people, were, everybody was upset. Because it was a you know it was a, a failure because of human error, avoidable human error. So um, a lot of people decided that they thought a good place to have an argument was at eight thousand meters. And I was like, this is the dumbest place ever to have an argument. Like we we need to get down. This is you know just you know time is going, bodies are weakening, you know illness is coming. Like let's just turn around. So I I actually was the first one to turn around when it became painfully obvious that we were not going to go up. I was like, I'm not going to sit around here and pout. This is the worst place ever. So I just raced all the way back down. Um, a lot of, you know, and which is good because the weather actually turned terrible by the afternoon. So, um, I, there was other complications that happened with other teams because they did chose not to descend very quickly and they didn't descend very far. So some people did get overcome by pulmonary edema, which ended up going into a multi-day rescue. So, um, yeah, there's a time for action or there's a time for retreat maybe is the best, you know, uh, way to describe it. And then, you know, there's a, you could, you could have that discussion later. That was definitely not the time and place for a discussion. So, uh, there's a time for a retreat, both in your retreating position on the mountain, but also in, uh, confrontation. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I think that there's, you, you know, I've had been around some really crazy human uh, interactions on 8,000 meter peaks. And I think that it's always best not to create enemies when you're in a life or death situation. Uh-huh. Like it's bad enough, right? The enemy is the altitude, the bad weather, the, you know, your body weakening. You didn't need to add another enemy, which is another human being that was really pissed at you. So I forgot to ask you, why do you want to climb this mountain to begin with? Well, I think I'm just a climber. So it just didn't grained in who I am as a person. I started going to Nepal or to the Himalayas in 1989 and um, I've led over 200 international expeditions. So I just really love it. I mean, I, I'm not the, 
you know, I'm in my fifties, so I'm not moving the sport forward anymore. You know, there was a time when I was doing new routes on eight thousand, on six thousand meter peaks, and I attempted a couple of new routes on eight thousand meter peaks, and you know, soloed the south face of Shishapangmo, which is the first time an American had ever soloed an eight thousand meter peak, and I did that in a thirty-six hour nonstop, you know, up and down uh, sprint, which not to you know, make Uli Steck look even better than he was, but he did do it in half the time it took me. <laughs> so, but, so there was a time when I thought I was moving the sport forward. Now I'm just like a fun participant, uh-huh. you know, like I love just going out and having cool experiences in the mountains and it doesn't really matter so much anymore what I climb. It's more important who I climb with. Um, but having said that, I do have a bucket list and catching jungle is on my bucket list. Uh, you're also uh, well known and have been practicing leadership for many, many years. Um, mm-hmm. Why are you so interested in leadership? Well, I think kind of an easy answer is is because when you're in these life or death situations, leadership matters. And I think there's lots of different types of situations I've been in where leadership truly did matter. So, well, you could you, know, you could be in a you could just be a really, really good follower, couldn't you? Uh I think following – being a, a professional follower on 8,000-meter peaks would be a terrible way to go okay. because <laughs> things go wrong. And so what happens if the person you're following had something go wrong for them? I always thought about that as when I was guiding people. Like I always tried to you know, give them as many, as many skills as I could because if something does go wrong, I wanted them to at least be able to help us solve the problem. Mm. So not have people com- be 100% dependent upon me. Have you ever, have you ever uh, made the mistake? Well, I've made hundreds of mistakes. Okay. <laughs> I think I, this, so this is really about if, okay, if you're the follower, then you want to follow a person who can admit that they've made mistakes mm-hmm. and that have the humility to, to, uh, to be able to, to live with their mistakes. One of the cool things about mountaineering is that it definitely teaches you how to fail. And, you know, I've been on maybe 14 or 15, 8,000 meter peak expeditions and I've only summited five times. So that's a pretty great failure rate, isn't it? It's, you know, it's 30, I've, I've failed 67 or 68% of the time. So that's, uh, I, I've, I'm a, I, yeah, I'm a major failure. So. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, you'd have to compare yourself to the other people who have attempted all of these uh, sure, but I think it's it just it puts it just into perspective sure, that yeah. you, it teaches you how to to process failure. So, you know, there's a grieving process that happens when we fail, um, especially if something like say if you wanted to climb Mount Everest, right? So you spent all this money, you did all this training, you you know you 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 took this risk, and then you don't get to the summit, then you know you're gonna nobody comes back from that feeling good about that. Mm. We do be, want to be around leaders who have failed before, who are comfortable with the grieving process, will let us all engage in that grieving process, hopefully guide us through that grieving process. Um, and most importantly, that they have what we would call the self-efficacy, right? The, the, the self-awareness that failure does not, is not going to define us and that failures are opportunities to, to learn and to pick ourselves back up and, you know, challenges are, you know, built into challenges, the opportunity to fail. So that these are the kind of people who are going to, okay, we failed. Great. Let's, let's, you know, reorganize ourselves. I mean, I went back to K2 three different times before I got to the summit. So every single time I picked myself back up out of my, uh, my, my, my self pity and, you know, repacked my backpacks and headed back up. <laughs> so since you've been so interested in leadership strategy for all this time, 
uh, has anything changed uh, as far as like what the, what the best practice is for leadership strategy or like what what did people used to do that now uh, may be a wrong way to lead? Well, when I first got into it, I think that the, the argument was could leaders be made or are they just born? Oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. and we definitely know that leaders can be made, uh-huh. and we have to make them right. So if you look at an organization, say like the military. Um, or any fast-growing entrepreneurial organization, they have to create new leaders on a you know constantly. Uh, I'm reading this book called Skin in the Game right now, uh-huh. and uh, the author brings up a point dealing with leaders and uh, often like war generals, and how mm-hmm. historically leaders have had skin in the game, where when they're making a decision such as charge. They're on the front lines. They have everything to gain by winning that battle, but they also have everything to lose because they're going to be one of the first ones to die. Mm -hmm. Yet it seems today that many of the people who are making the very, very, very important decisions don't have that downside risk. There's an asymmetric upside. Is that true? I would totally agree with you. Yep. I think it's a very – if you look at an organization – all of the magic is created where customer meets frontline staff. And so if you – if the whole rest of the organization, everything behind that frontline staff has to be in support of the people at the frontline for this whole thing to work. And if we go back to, as you're describing it, to historical times, the greatest general of all time, of course, was Alexander the Great. So at 23 years old, he starts marching across and he spends uh, you know, roughly 10 years, including three years in Afghanistan, fighting battle after battle after battle. But he gets, he gets almost to the furthest east he gets from uh, after he leaves uh, Macedonia, which is part of Greece now. And he, uh, he he's at the point where after you know, people have been away from home for eight, nine, ten years, all these Macedonian warriors, and they're like, look, dude, we're billionaires by after all we've plundered. And we're old, we're sick of fighting. Can we please go home? And he's he he they they want a mutiny. That's how pissed off they are about having been away from their wives and kids for so long. And Alexander the Great gets in front of all of these Macedonian warriors and he rips off his clothes and he's standing in front of him and this whole chest is sliced up with these scars from having been stabbed and you know torn apart in these different battles and then he flips around and he shows him his back and there's not a single scar on his back and he says to them are you going to turn your back on me I've never turned my back on you nor have I ever turned my back on our enemies and at that point everyone decides okay no we're going to stick with this guy for a lot longer okay so uh, as we wrap things up I uh, want to hear more about your plans coming up over the next uh, mm-hmm. month, what, a month and a half or so? Yeah, two months. Two yep. months. Okay. What is the plan? You fly out in five days. Yeah, we fly, we'll fly to Kathmandu, and then from Kathmandu, we'll go up to Lukla, which is, you know, the kind of this jumping off point to head towards Everest. But we're going to go the other direction. We're going to uh, go climb a peak called Mira Peak first, which is 21,500 feet. So that'll give us a kind of a fun way to acclimatize. And then from there, we'll travel to Kachinjunga, um, do probably one climb up to about 25,000 feet or so, and then come down, wait for good weather, and then go tag Kachinjunga. And then if we get done early enough, I'm also on a permit for Makalu. So I'll then head over to Makalu and see if we can't make a quick sprint to the summit of that peak. Okay. You'll already be pretty acclimatized by that point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and skinny. 
Oh yeah. What? Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so uh, have, how have you been training uh, leading up to this? Well, I've been uh, I've been traveling a little bit too much, but we uh, I get to spend a lot of time in Aspen, and Aspen's great because you can skin up the top of Aspen Mountain as long as you turn around by nine o'clock in the morning. So I'm an early birder, so I love getting up early and skinning to up. Aspen. And then I live in Golden. So when I'm in Golden, uh, we have amazing, amazing mountain biking in our backyard. And I actually don't think there's any better training for mountaineering than mountain biking. Wow. Um, yeah. That's Although ma- Yes. But mountain biking is the absolute, excuse me, mountaineering is the worst training for mountain biking. Okay. So <laughs> funny how it works. So, why why is mountain have- biking so good for mountaineering? Oh, the aerobics is just fantastic, especially, yeah. you know, it's constant interval training. And yeah. so- yeah, I mean, you become an aerobic beast, and you um, you develop a lot of power in your legs. Yeah. So, yeah. What, what are you most nervous about? Mm, boredom. Oh, okay. I'm not as good at sitting in 8,000-meter peak base camps as I used to be. Okay, well, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us right before your expedition. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you when you return. Thanks, Ben. I'll talk to you in two months. Okay. Coming up, we'll hear how it all went down. But first, let me ask you some questions. During these hot and humid summer days, are you happy with your underwear? Or are you constantly making these awkward adjustments to the fabric that's near your thighs? Or do you ever find yourself sweating down there when you really know you shouldn't be? Before I discovered Saks underwear, I wasn't proud of my answers to those questions. But now, Saks has recently released their new Undercover Collection, which is made of this incredibly soft cotton modal. It's breathable, moisture-wicking, and resistant to odor. And of course, they have the signature ballpark pouch. That's that three-dimensional lounging area for your fellas to sit back, relax, and enjoy. Try the Undercover Collection, or anything else from Saks Underwear, for yourself. With our partnership with Saks, you get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase, and that includes everything, even the stuff on sale. Use the code MEISTER, that's M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout at saxunderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com. Now back to part two of my interview with Chris Warner. This happened after he returned from his Ketchenjunga expedition. So as far as your uh, your plan went, uh, you said that you were going to fly in and then go to Mira Peak. Is that uh, mm-hmm. is that correct? Did you go? Did you in fact go there? Yeah, we uh, we had a great trip on Mira Peak. The weather was fantastic. And um, do you know Charlotte Fox, who just recently passed away? She had she was the first American woman to summit three eight thousand meter peaks, and she was on the nineteen ninety six Everest expedition. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was one of the, the you know she luckily survived that obviously, but she and I got to spend a little time together right below Mira Peak, and then she just lo- uh, passed away in Telluride a couple of weeks ago. Oh, so no. okay. we lost a, a, one of America's you know truly great mountaineers. And just super person. I mean, she was so full of energy. It's not even funny. She was there with you. No, she was on another trip. And okay. um, she was headed off to a peak called Barunse via Mira Peak. Like we were headed to Ketchenjunga via Mira Peak. So anyway, it was old, it was old, uh, old climbers uh, network going on in Mira Peak. Huh. Um, did she die in a related incident or unrelated? Do you know? Uh, she died in a fall, but actually a oh. fall down staircases. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, it was terrible. That's awful. 
Yeah, if they're having survived, you know, so much incredible, you know, epic climbing adventures, and yeah. you had to die in your own house by falling down a set of stairs. Wow. So yeah, terrible. Um. So the the trip on Mira Peak went problem free. Nothing uh, like good weather. Everything. It was so ideal. <laughs> it was just unbelievable. The summit day, there was not a cloud in the sky. You could see five, 8,000-meter peaks from there. And uh, the sky just was, you know, just one beautiful color after the next. It, it was just one of the most magical days you could ever have in the mountains. And, you know, Mirror Peak is, I think it's 20, it's almost 21,000 feet, around 21,000 feet tall. Uh, and it, And it's dead easy. I mean, it's just a you know, a tilted sidewalk the whole way to the top. But boy, it was just, you know, abs- the, the views, it, because the climbing was so easy, you just can look all day long or all night long at these spectacular scenes as you were headed to the top. So if you wanted to fill your soul with just great mountain vistas, it was the perfect place to go. Didn't you feel like Mother Nature was like wasting her goods on you at uh, at Mira Peak? And like once you got to Kachanjanga, things wouldn't be so hot? Well, I didn't think about it at the time, but now that you bring it up, I think you're absolutely oh, right. Oh, no. <laughs> so now you're turning me into a complete pessimist, <laughs> right? So, yeah, so we got to Kachinjunga, and, um, you know, so we had acclimatized to, you know, 6,400 meters on Mira Peak, and then got to Kachinjunga, and everybody was feeling great. So we got a weather window. We raced up and got to spend some time at camp. We actually skipped camp one, the, the logistics on Catching Junger are pretty unique right now. So anyway, we skipped camp one and went right to camp two and then went from camp two up to camp three and um, and then came down and just had the long tortured wait for the weather to improve to get a summit bid. And then we started up towards the summit and, uh, you know, feeling like a total rock star. Um, got to camp two and, you know, as short as time possible and then up to camp three. And then at camp two, we actually got trapped for an extra day. The weather was terrible. So we had to spend an extra day at camp two, which is at 6,400 meters. And then went up to camp three, which was, um, just under 7,000 meters. And we got stuck there for three nights. Wow. And, um, I ended up having a upper rest or first a sinus infection that turned into the beginnings of an upper respiratory infection. So, couldn't under at the point in time like I don't really understand why my second gear isn't working. Like my first gear was fine, my second gear wasn't there, and then went up to, to high camp, um, which is pretty low on catching junk. It's only about seventy four hundred meters, and then we left that night for the summit, and somewhere you know probably up at seventy six hundred or seventy seven hundred meters, I was just could feel my chest filling with this, uh, like my bronchioles filled with, I thought it was like a gigantic Nerf football that somebody shoved in there. And, um, I ended up turning around and it was a epic day anyway. So I turned around at about 7,800 meters and, um, had a, a very brutal descent. Actually, I've had some crazy descents where things were touch and go. This was definitely one of my first, my, my, my four worst descents to so- the point where, yeah. Well, for, first of all, before we get to the descent, yeah. you made it to 7,800. Is that what you said? Yeah, somewhere okay. around 7,800 meters. So you're and still then, a uh, decent clip from the top. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was still 700 meters from top. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, I knew that my speed because of this long issue was not great enough to, you know, to just to, to duke that out for that many hours because you could see how slow everything was going. Right, so, right, right. And especially on that particular day because the snow had been so deep and unconsolidated so even though there was you know a, I don't know a couple dozen people trying to get to the summit uh the basically the, the 
the speed was so unbelievably slow that the first summiter, I think, got to the summit after 25 hours of leaving high camp. Wow. And he was uh, actually a Sherpa that was uh, with our team. And then uh, a total of five people summited out of, I don't know how many people were going up, but maybe 25 to 35 people okay. were trying to head up that day. Mm-hmm. So five people summited. So so then you you decide to turn around. Yep. And that's the the hairy descent that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. So every hour I got, you know, 10% weaker from the lack of oxygen. As and you're going up or is this as I was up? going down. As you're going and down. So, oh, okay. Yeah. And so even like, you know, three o'clock that afternoon, I'm down at trying to get to camp too. And, um, you know, I was really by myself. I had a, all this gear on my back and stuff. And I got to, you know, I'd go 20 meters and sit down for 10 minutes and 20 meters to sit down for 10 minutes. And, you know, it took all your, en- all your mental energy to get you to go back up again. When I crawled into a tent at camp two to rest, cause it was, the weather was pretty, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of patchy, uh, snowstorm coming in. And, uh, I lay down in the tent and all of a sudden, as soon as I lay down, it's like, oh my God, the chest, I don't know, it was the change of angle of my chest or whatever, but the pressure was even greater. And so I dragged myself out of the tent to continue down towards base camp and uh, you have to go up and over this little rock ridge and, you know, at sea level, you wouldn't think twice about it, but at, you know, 20,000 feet, it seemed like, you know, (laughs) it was its own Everest. And I ended up having, I saw a Sherpa coming up below me and I had to yell down to him like, do you have an oxygen tank? And so all of a sudden I'm pumping oxygen at 20,000 feet just to try to get back to base camp and crawled into base camp and got a hold of a friend of mine who got a hold of a pulmonologist and we yeah, ended up starting to take some steroids and you know a bunch of other stuff and slept on four liters of oxygen that night just to try to make it through the night so yeah what, what just, it was a pain in the neck to tell you the truth it's just so typical of that kind of junk you just put in this situation and you're like okay how much am i will you know i, I have to suffer because i don't want to you know i certainly didn't want to sit down and freeze to death mm-hmm. and so you're like okay now i got to dig into this part of my body that's we, we all know we have it that survival mode but it's just you know it's just depressing to be in that state so it sounds like there were some options on the mountain like uh you had a sherpa uh, near you when it seems like you needed it. Um, how do you, let's say you were out there solo. How much Mm -hmm. do you kind of back it off? Um, or how much did you push yourself because you maybe in the back of your head knew you had like a few backup options if. Yeah. Well, when I used to do a lot of soloing, I was a lot younger. <laughs> so I had, I think I had way more depth of physical ability, like way more brawn. Uh-huh. Now I have, uh, I hope I have more brain, but I definitely have less brawn. So something that would have been, you know, it's everything is, you know, I don't know if it's 10% harder or 20% harder in your 50s than it is in your 30s. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely that issue going on. So this might not have been a memorable day in my 30s, which is, but it's, you know, but it's super drama in your 50s. You had told me uh, when I asked you what made you most nervous about this trip. Actually, do you remember what you said? Uh, that would run out of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say? You said boredom would make, uh, uh, you were nervous about being bored. Do you think yes. that that was... Uh, an accurate prediction of what could go wrong. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I fear boredom every single day. Okay. So 
Yeah. No, I actually, that's a really good answer to tell you the truth. Okay. And it, it's wise, especially having been on Catch and Jungle before, where there's nowhere to go when you're in base camp. Like you just can't trek to a village or you can't even really trek anywhere. So you, um, and last year was made 10 times more terrible because my e-reader died on the trek in. So even though I had 37 books in an e-reader, I had none I could read. Um, so I experienced a lot of boredom in last year, but this year my e-reader worked great nice. and I read a ton of great books. What, so what kind of books did was, you read? Uh, you know, it, the thing about – I'm a big fan of nonfiction, especially history. The problem with reading history at 18,000 feet is that your memory is so bad. So you might read a book about Teddy Roosevelt and like, oh, my God, it's the most fascinating person ever. And like, oh, what did he do? I'm like, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have to – fiction is definitely easier on the brain at altitude than nonfiction. Okay. Yeah. So do you want to give us a book? Uh I read a couple of Michael Lewis books, if you're familiar oh, with yeah. him. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love Michael Lewis. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, well, one, if you read the, uh, I'm going to get Mike and Tyler, but the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. No? Uh, what is oh, that? Oh, my God. Put that on your list. Okay. So, yeah. It's just brilliant. The, the storyline he creates um, in this setting is just so good. So the Graveyard Book. Okay. Yeah, by Neil Gaiman. So how about your your training? I, I had asked you uh, how you trained for this, and you said uh, lots of skinning up Aspen and, yep. mount, and mountain biking. Did you Do you think that those were uh, sufficient? Oh, yeah. No, I felt unbelievable. I mean, it actually was you know almost uh, poetic that I ended up having an upper respiratory issue because up to that point, I felt like I was just floating. For huh. seven weeks, I floated everywhere, and then for you know two and a half days, I could barely – uh, you know, I couldn't find second gear. So you didn't summit? Nope. No, uh, no attempt after this condition. That would be, no, I mean, I, when I, I had to get to a doctor as fast as I could. So came back to the United States and, you know, ended up on more antibiotics and more, uh, steroids and eventually, uh, you know, it kind of went away. Okay. How long has it been since you returned? Well, I've been back now for just a little over a month. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And do you feel, how do you feel like physically? Well, I did. Um, I feel great, actually. That's <laughs> okay. part of the problem. I feel like, damn it. Because, you know, I've been on the mountain bike like crazy. You know, this morning was 14 miles on the mountain bike plus a, a, a weight training session. So I can't say that I feel weak. So that was uh, Ketchin Junga escaping you for the second or the third time? Second time. Second time. Okay. Is there going to be a third attempt? Well, the week I came back, absolutely not. You know, I was I was kicking stones and cursing eight thousand meter peaks, and um, you know, I, you know, look, we we have problems. You're addicted. <laughs> yes, but there is a list of stuff I want to do. This is one of the 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 unique challenges of you know eight thousand meter peak climbing takes lots of time, and you don't really do a lot of climbing on those trips. And I have a list of other stuff that I want to do too, especially before I age too much. So, you know, I really would love to do stuff like the Cassine Ridge and I'd love to go do the North face of the Eiger and I'd love to, you know, just get some other rock climbing stuff done. So I am kind of hoping that I'm going to take a little time away from the Himalayas and spend it trying to check some of those other fun stuff off my list while I can. Very good. Okay. So that, uh, that puts us at next year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, so I'm hoping to do. I think we're going to go to Vincent too this year, okay. and 
trying to do some stuff for the big city mountaineers. Oh, great. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to run a Kelly trip for those guys as a fundraiser. And, uh, so does, I have a, I have plenty of stuff to keep me ex- excited for next year. I'm excited to hear how everything progresses. Uh, my last question was, how do you think that this adventure changed you? Did you learn anything? You've done a lot, a lot of climbing. Anything from this trip that uh, has changed you? You know what? One thing that was really important to me on this, or came, was so satisfying about this trip was I felt such a sense of comfort the whole time that I think, um, you know, in in the transition of our lives, right, where I was so focused on, you know, building a company and running a company and, you know, serving a couple hundred employees. And now that we have a new CEO in the organization and my, uh, I'm getting to change my role, it was so much easier to be relaxed. Hmm. There was a different, like all this other stuff that was happening in the outside world I knew was being well taken care of. So I could just focus on enjoying, you know, I don't know, reading my books and sitting in the sun and just, it was just really, there's a deep level of satisfaction from just hanging out in base camp, which I'm normally pacing the, you know, the, the floor trying to, you know, just do stuff. And I was way more, I was way more uh, content. That, that sounds incredible. I, I had like a pretty stressful day today. Uh-huh. Uh, just, you know, like one thing after another and like running around, uh, and what you just described sounds phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, I suggest semi-retirement to everybody. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but the problem is you got to earn that right. I know, and, I know. Or, I, or win, the, win some kind of entrepreneurial lottery. Exactly, uh, so, yeah. yeah. No, the, the entrepreneurial lottery is, is very tempting, but it's also, that's, I mean, extraordinarily stressful in its own. Uh, as as Steve Jobs has said, and everybody else has repeated, it takes twenty years to become an overnight success. So, <laughs> yeah, right. In fact, actually, one of the books I just finished reading for those people who are big bookie people is "Shoe Dog" by Phil Knight oh, about learning yeah. of uh, Nike. And oh my God, it was such a great story. Yeah, just read it uh, a few months ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Chris Warner, thanks so much for joining us for uh, part two of your episode. Sorry, you couldn't sum it, but uh, wish you the best of luck. Yeah, well, thanks. And thanks for the uh, encouragement on the luck. So I definitely <laughs> need it. <laughs> That's Chris Warner, mountaineer, leadership expert, and entrepreneur. He's the founder of the national chain of climbing gyms called Earth Treks. Sometimes people choose to apply the word dirtbag as like a blanket term for all climbers. But I think Chris does a pretty good job of proving that wrong. In fact, after our interview, Chris mentioned to me that one of the people who used to run Excel for Microsoft is a big time climber. So I guess the next time one of your finance friends gives you that dirtbag line, just tell them that their beloved spreadsheets wouldn't be so beloved without that dirtbag. You can find out more about Chris at chrisbwarner.com. And of course that link will be on our website and on the show notes of this episode. Up next is our company spotlight segment. Just a reminder that in our company spotlights, companies are not allowed to pay Mountain Meister to be featured. They only have to provide us some gear to test out, and we like them to be smaller companies that you have preferably not heard of. Today's company spotlight is with Danny Shane. They make higher-end cycling apparel, and I spoke with their founder, Shane Hunt, about, first off, where the name Danny Shane came from. Well, I go by Shane, but Danny is my first name. Okay. And um, so Danny Shane, 
is um, growing up in Texas, I mean, close friends and family would maybe call me Danny Shane, but I always liked and preferred Shane, and that's what my parents called me. So Shane has roots as a designer in the tennis and golf industries, and he saw an opportunity to take some of the designs and the technologies and other things that he'd learned there and apply them in the cycling brand, Danny Shane. He's also a triathlete, with cycling being his favorite of the three. Everyone borrows from everyone. You see something that inspires you. And frankly, I've always been a flat of uh, a fan of tartans, tartan plaids, plaids, you know. And tartans are, you know, there's a rich history and a heritage in, in tartans um, that's connected to the golf industry. And I'm like, you know, this could be done well and maybe brought over to the cycling industry because being highly visible is a big plus. When you look at Danny Shane gear, it doesn't quite look like your normal high-tech cycling apparel. It has a much, much more classic design. There are no neons or reflective tapes. Instead, there are these baby blues or Scottish reds and the tartan designs that Shane mentioned earlier. The number one thing that I wanted to accomplish was a, a new look and a new style and a new design because whether it's on a body or on a hanger, you know, I want to draw attention to to a new design visually. I do think it is paramount. At the same time, equally as important to your point is what technical advances could we do in apparel? And so we were using bamboo charcoal in the golf industry way before cycling ever heard of it. Most of the jerseys still today are 100% poly and they're scratchy. Um, they're not soft and comfortable. They don't breathe. They don't wick. Um, they snag easy. Um, they have static qualities. So I'm like, you know, we could take this technology um, and bring it to cycling. So we did. And there was some, something going on around bamboo charcoal back in 2010 where we were discovering that we could actually double burn um, the bamboo, cleanly burn it to a white, um, white fibers, just like, say, it's in the bottom of your grill. You know, that ash yeah, is yeah. that gray white. And when you spun and created yarn and then you created and then you wove that into um, uh, polyester synthetics, you wouldn't have that dull gray undertone because bamboo charcoal, you could, it was hard to get a bright blue, but you can get a vibrant blue with using white ash. The bamboo white ash, along with the timeless designs, creates what Danny Shane says is a very long lasting cycling kit. You know, these characteristics uh, are in the product for the life of the garment. Now, if you look at the chemical world, and I don't want to pick on some of the big boys, but, but dry fit and climacool, these are chemical rinses. So you can basically spray or coat or rinse on 100% poly, and it will have those same characteristics I just said, but it will wash out. So after around 15, 20 washes, it's gone. And then you just have a polyester top that's going to stink and smell and snag. This is real technology, and I'm anxious to send it to you, Ben, because it really does perform. In addition to the bibs and the jerseys, Danny Shane also has a line of polos, which can be worn on your road bike, on a mountain bike, and also to the office on a casual Friday. These capture the cyclist lifestyle and also come at a lower price point than the jerseys. Anything on two wheels has this spiritual thing that got me in cycling. You know, you have time to think on a bike and see the world, but it does come at you faster. There's an element of danger, which is kind of attracted to it. And it's a beautiful sport. It's a, you know, and now I just felt like when I started it, the clothing was, you know, okay. It's a lot of Me Too brands. They were a lot of NASCAR looking billboard things along or some solid boring colors. It seemed everything was beige. Finally, Shane highlighted the brand's fit. 
which is a touch more, let's call it American. I'm six foot of, you know, 185. And some of the other brands that I like, um, and by the way, I have some other brands in my closet that I respect and like, but I wore an XL and a race cut. It was a Euro cut, wow. what I would call a Euro cut. <laughs> yeah. And I, it was tight. So in Danny Shane, I wear a large. It's not wreck. It is race cut, but it, it does fit like American audience. But I will mention that that bamboo component has a little bit of stretch, a little bit of what I call elasticity. And it's like a body wrap. So there is no flapping or wind noise. And you are you are you are aerodynamically cutting through the wind. And um, so, I mean, this is years of working on perfecting the fit and we still tweak it. People can make uh, purchases all online, correct? Yes, that's correct. It's dannyshane.com, D-A-N-N-Y-S-H-A-N-E.com. Uh, I'm not sure, I always forget to ask this before the interview, but is there an option to do like a promo code on the site? Yeah, you know, let's just do it. Okay. Um, why don't we come up with something now? I was thinking about that mm -hmm. um, for your audience and... You can come up with the name. Yeah, I have the name already. It's going to be Wait, Meister, the... M-E-I-S-T-E-R. M -E -I -S -T -E -R. Let's do Meister 20. We'll, we'll do 20% off for your audience. Perfect. Um, the date you want it turned on, and we'll run it for like um, four or five days. And I'll do 20 off on everything on the side. I really appreciate wow. the, the time. That's the th okay. Thank you so much. That's really nice. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Okay. Uh, that's uh, Shane Hunt from Danny Shane. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Have a good day. That deal lasts until August 12th, so if you want it, get it while you can. Meister20, M-E-I-S-T-E-R-2-0 for 20% off. The jerseys retail for normally $129, and the bibs at $209, the polos at $60. 20% off with Meister20. Now let's hear what roommate Max and I thought of the products after we had a chance to try them out. Okay, we're here with uh, Max talking about Danny Shane. Max, how you doing? <laughs> Good, how are you, Ben? Um, and we should probably preface this by saying like, we're not actually talking to a guy named Danny Shane. <laughs> this true. is the brand of clothing. That is the brand, although the founder's name is uh, Danny Shane. <laughs> Um, so we are talking about the clothing brand, Danny Shane, not the founder. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, pretty top of the line, uh, bicycle apparel, uh, Max and I both received a Jersey and a pair of, uh, bibs. Uh, both of us have tried them out. Max, I assume you've used it mostly on your mountain bike. Yeah. So I've ridden probably 10 rides on my mountain bike. Um, one ride on my road bike, believe it or not, you okay. can me. but yeah, they're, they're good. Um, in either discipline, I would say. And what happened, uh, to you the last time that you, uh, wore this apparel? Oh, Ben, 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 Oh, unfortunately the listeners are going to be, um, bummed out, but roommate Max is down with an injury at this point broken clavicle in four places. I had my surgery last week. We have a plate in the body. What, what exactly happened uh, in your accident? <laughs> oh, I was I was just getting a little too gnarly, a little too radical. Um, Hannah was telling me to send it medium. I sent it large. <laughs> I just I beat it in um, hard on the mountain bike. 
Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, our apparel. So yeah, we both got jerseys. We both got uh, bibs. Um, what has stuck out to you? Let's start with the bibs. Um, bibs are super nice. Um, this is actually my first pair of bike bibs I've ever owned. Um, and I think I've been transformed. Um, oh. They feel super nice. It's really nice to like feel no waistband. And I think that's something that like bibs or, or people yeah. that wear bibs often will tell you. But yeah, there's like a few aspects that I really like, like this this material around the legs that um, prevents them from riding up on your thighs, like they stay put yep. for the whole ride. Um, and then the, the, the butt pad is, um, I don't want to go out on a limb here, but I, I feel like you could characterize this as the Cadillac of bike shorts. Wow. You feel like you're, you're sitting in a recliner while on the seat. Um, super comfortable. I did like a six hour ride one day in these, um, no chafage, no blisties. The buns were feeling nice at the end of the day. (laughs) Um, I was saying before that this, uh, this foam seems a little bit higher density, I think than, uh, my other bicycle shorts, just a little bit more, which means, uh, the pad overall isn't as thick. You have a little bit of a sleeker, uh, sleeker design in the in the pad, but it still offers a lot of support. Uh, it also has kind of a uh, let's call it like a graduated uh, levels of thickness from like the most thick uh, to the part where you need it most to the least thick. Uh, once you start going out toward the periphery of the uh, of the padding. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, also, something that I really like about this compared to my other bibs, this is my uh, third pair of bibs. And, uh, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. The mesh that, that Danny Shane uses is just like this ultimate lightweight, super soft and breathable like here let me show you i mean you have a pair max but like look at these look at these straps that are all made of the mesh compared to this other like top of the line italian brand uh bike shorts these are just like a solid yeah it's like a solid elastic band which like kind of kind of bugs me uh on the bike like it kind of cuts into my uh into like my collarbone um, sure. not enough to break it. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, <laughs> oh, congrats, Ben, on the strong collarbone. must be nice. Cool, cool. Uh, but, but the mesh is much softer. I agree. Um, I only had one issue with the mesh and this is totally my fault, but I had my watch catching it when I was putting it on one day. So it was a slight tear. Oh, really? Wow. Not like, not like torn, but it's like one of those snags or. Oh, yeah, you know, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no big deal though. I mean, okay. Let's but, go to Jersey if you're ready. Yeah, for sure. Well, actually, hold on. What size do you have of this stuff? So I went with medium in both. I got the medium okay. bibs and medium uh, jersey. That's what I did too. On the jersey front, um, <laughs> let me tell you a story about this jersey. So the first night I wore it, I went out to a Tuesday night bike ride with some friends. Um, we have a, a, like a weekly get-together. But I wore both my bibs and my jersey for the first time ever. And... <laughs> <laughs> feeling good, feeling funky. The the jersey I got is like super polka dotted. Um, so it's definitely a statement piece when you wear it. Yeah. And um, I was feeling a little bit like self-conscious, not self-conscious, but you know, it's like sort of it's aggressive to wear that. Yeah. 
Yeah, oh yeah, for sure, for sure. And so I show up to the ride and all these guys are like, some I had met before, some of my friends were like, whoa, where'd you get that? Um, halfway through the ride, we ran into a group of women riding the ride in the other direction. The first thing, the first woman says, she looks up, whoa, cool jersey. And I'm, uh, I was just a hero for the rest of the day. <laughs> I was like, oh, you like them polka dots? You're like, yeah, I do. Those are <laughs> sweet. They do. It's so, a- I, I had a very similar conversation with with the Danny Shane uh, about the styles of the jersey, um, and I told him that there's no way I could pull off uh, one of these like polka dots, or they have the hounds uh, tooth like checkered kind of design, right, right. some like pretty aggressive looking, and then there is like the more the more classic looking ones. Uh, so I have the Rigby Blue Max, and here it is. So it's just like a nice. Uh, light blue color oh, with like some uh stripes on the sleeve but, but pretty reserved overall compared to some of their other designs and i i love this it's um it's very visible on the road but it's not so visible where it don't really deserve to be wearing some of the other stuff <laughs> and now what did you think about uh maybe the more technical properties of the fabric yeah so again this is i i got the snow ridge polo um oh I think you're these- in the you're in the polo yeah, oh, I tell you that. Yeah, this okay, is a I thought you're in the this jersey. Collar and everything. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's nice. Gotcha. The Snow okay. Ridge Polo. Gotcha. So it, it like looks like um, it looks like a traditional golf shirt almost. Yeah. Like super nice um, technical material. I don't know what it's made of. It's called bamboo white ash. Bamboo white ash. Yep. So um, that's all. Software. That's all in the interview with uh, with the Danny Shane. The Danny Shane. Yeah. It's. Probably not like the first jersey I'm going to pick up um, based on a few different things. So when I like to ride mountain bikes, um, it's it's and it's maybe the same for a road bike. Um, it's nice to have some kind of pocket in your jersey, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's like throwing a car key in there or a granola bar. So no pocket, no pocket on the polo. Yeah, no pocket on the okay. polo, and I don't want like necessarily a, a, a yeah, rest no, but, pocket, yeah, like something, something on the back love handle. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, would be nice. Um, that being said, not a deal breaker. Um, you know, usually your shorts have some kind of pocket too, but um, I like the material. It's it's not like traditional jersey material. It feels a little yeah. bit softer. Um, it's from from like a comfort standpoint knocked it out of the park Mm -hmm. i would definitely give it like you know a nine out of ten so yeah not like my first go-to on the jersey in my jersey drawer but definitely like when i want to make a statement or if i'm having a good time um yeah it's a nice nice piece okay so i got the actual full zip up uh bicycle jersey not a polo um, yep. and I've got three sweet pockets in the back here. There's also uh, the grip tape at the bottom of the Jersey around the elastic part to keep it like sticking, uh, down low and not riding up is, uh, very nice. It worked the, really, really well. The other day I went on like this 25 or so mile, uh, like super, super, super humid bike ride. It was like uh, humidity level 1000. Um, and I was like, I didn't wear gloves uh, and like was just like getting my bicycle soaking wet just from like the sweat falling from my head 
uh, off of, uh, like straight off of my head onto my handlebars. Like my grip, my grip tape was starting to get slippery cause that's how much I was sweating. Um, but the, the fabric itself like actually handled that sweat really, really well. That's disgusting. And also, oh, I mean, it was uh, like, it was so humid. Yeah. Monsoon Ben. Yeah. Um, I also got a medium Jersey fits me perfectly. Uh, pants, pants, uh, the bibs were like a touch tight. Uh, I have like really big quads and a butt. No um, but I think it'll stretch out just a touch. So yeah, I'm happy yeah. about that. Well, it's also a lot better to be on the tighter yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. Would you purchase, uh, Danny Shane with your own money? Okay. Here's a, a good breakdown. And I was thinking about this before you asked me the question, uh, but, um, the price point on these bibs, I believe, is two hundred nine dollars. Um, you have it offhand, yeah, two hundred nine dollars. I thought it was one ninety nine. Um, so here's the deal with the bibs. I think if I could get them on sale in in you know the the winter time, I would consider purchasing these bibs. Mm-hmm. You know, for somebody who is an avid cyclist who you know wants to have top of the line stuff, this is definitely where you want to be. But for me, you know, at this point. Um, I'm not, I'm not a big spender yet. So, you know, I, uh, don't think I'm going to be buying these anytime soon. What about you? Uh, I I think that (laughs) the Jersey is a borderline purchase with your own money. In my opinion, it's like literally has everything that I want in a Jersey. You have to remember that we got different. You got the polo. I got that like actual bike Jersey. I have the pockets. Right, right. I have like the little zipper access pocket. The material is so money. Um, the the jerseys retail uh, between one oh five and one twenty nine, which isn't like outrageous. And especially with the discount that they're offering, which I think is like twenty percent. Um, you're talking about like a pretty reasonably oh, yeah. priced uh, bicycle jersey. So um, yes, jersey buy with my own money. Bibs, I agree expensive uh but but yeah i mean they're top of the line yeah and i I think that's something that like we sort of have to take into consideration right like if you want bibs that are super nice yeah buy these These are the Um, yeah these are the bibs you buy for sure again that's dannyshane.com d-a-n-n-y-s-h-a-n-e.com if you want to check out their stuff 20% 20% off with the code MEISTER20 at checkout. We'll also have the links, of course, on our website and on the show notes of this episode. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening to Mountain Meister. If you have any other potential Mountain Meisters or companies that you'd like to hear featured on the show, send them my way. Or if you just want to say hi, do that. Ben at mtnmeister.com. Till the next time you hear my voice, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do while you listen to this podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. You've been listening to Mountain Meister. <laughs>